We've been in a series talking about money here at Woven, a series called um, Economics, or the Greek word is oikonomika. And it's not this typical series about money or about giving, but we've been talking about um, God's unseen hand, so to speak, how God works in the world, how God uses money to bless people, in particularly the poor, in particularly the poor. And so the series is not just about middle class and the wealthy and how we can make more money, but the series is about how we can serve the poor better. So you can see that this talk is not just about um, hot tips on investing as much as it's about how can we do mission better as a church community? How can we use money and economics to do mission in this city um, where we are strategically just south of the energy corridor, just north of Aleaf and the suburban poor. How can we do ministry better? That's what the series really is boiling down to. If I could reestablish the three founding um, principles for this series, I've been doing this every Sunday, and I'll reiterate it today. The three guiding principles for this series is first and foremost that the poor come first. And no matter how many ways, which ways you read the Bible, I think this is inescapable. In Jesus' economics of the kingdom, the poor are always first priority. When Paul started this church, this new church movement, this multi-ethnic church thing, and as it was growing, the Jews in Jerusalem, the church establishment watched and said, my goodness, this is really kind of taking off. And they said, okay, listen, we have some... We have some requirements for you. Okay, here it comes. The Jews are going to tell us how to cut our hair and how to dress properly for church. They're going to tell us to turn down that rock music, and they're going to tell us to, you know, uh, look presentable for church. Actually, they said one thing. The only thing they said was, remember the poor, which Paul says, which is exactly what I was intending to do. Remember the poor. So the poor come first. There's this teaching called the preferential option for the poor, which basically says that the moral test of any society can be determined by how it treats the least among them. How it treats the poorest among them is the test of any society. So the poor, I think there's no way we can escape this in God's kingdom, come first. Now, you might be like me on the way to church on a Sunday morning um, coming across the poor right on the street corners. We face this every week, every, every time we come to church. There are the poor. And what do we do? Well, one thing we could do is tax the really rich and take all of their money and say, that'll solve the problem and we'll redistribute the wealth. Is that the second, is that the, is that the, is that the, the second guiding principle is the best way to serve the poor is not to redistribute wealth. Because the more I've been learning about this, we think that if we take the money from the uber rich and we give it to the poor, that will solve the problem. Actually, there's some real problems even with that. That's a great way to de-incentivize an economy. Um, Actually, the better way is not to redistribute wealth, but to create wealth, to create on-ramps for the poor, to create um, enterprise, stimulation of enterprise and opportunities for the poor to be able to have their own flourishing. 
So we're not just taking money away from the rich and giving it. What we're doing is we're saying, here, we want to see you make something of this, and here's an opportunity, and we'll coach, and we'll guide, and we'll walk with you, but we're on your team. The best way to keep a community crippled is to throw money at them and watch the money disappear quickly and watch nothing come of it. So the second principle is the best way really to serve the poor is to give them a chance to flourish themselves, to create wealth themselves. And therefore, the third and last guiding principle, therefore the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable. Now hear this carefully because Jesus has a lot of hard things and harsh things to say to rich people. But what we're saying here is it's appropriate and reasonable to pursue wealth if the primary motivation, if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. I'm hearing um, that there's this new trend amongst the ultra-wealthy where at the end of their lives, they're really giving away all of their money anyway. For example, Warren Buffett, who I don't know how, what he's valued at, billions if not trillions of dollars, is allegedly pledging to give away 99% of his money. 99% of his money. Now here's the thing. Uh, if the government tells you you have to give away 99% of the money because you are the top 1%, um, I don't think that would go over very well. Instead, what's happening is you have somebody of his own volition giving away his money, and not only that, he's investing that money, and that money is making more money, and so you have a never-ending pot of charity that's being used to end things like open defecation. That's a new thing for the World Health Organization. To end diseases, eradicable diseases, to provide clean water. This is the reality we live in in the world today. It's actually... Um, capitalistically driven charity. Now, I, I won't get too teacher heavy today. I just want to lay those foundations that if the primary motivation is to serve the poor, the pursuit of wealth can be very, very effective. It can be very effective. Let me just bring this home here for us at Woven. Woven is a church. We're four years old. Um, we've had growth. We've had different seasons. We've had different people come to this church community. And about th four summers ago, we started going to um, this summer camp. The summer camp is one of the best summer camps I've ever experienced. I'm still a big kid when I go there. Um, and we're looking forward. I know Ashley has been rallying up and getting the kids, getting a head count. The first year we went, we received a grant from the Stoller Foundation, Mr. Jerry Stoller here in Houston. He gave us $3,000 so that we could send... I don't remember how many it was back then. Peter was part of that original group. It was you. It was Austin. It was me. That, that first year, and then the second year, there was more. Well, they gave us 3,000, and then the next year, Stoller gave us 5,000. This year, Stoller gave us 9,000. 9,000 can send 20 kids to camp. 20 kids. That means, A, you can get your evangelism on. If, you have, if your kids have classmates and you want to get them into church, this is a great way. But it also means, B, that to date, Stoller Foundation has given us $17,000. $17,000 to Woven Church. And whenever I come in, uh, to the awards ceremony, we're just one of many organizations that's receiving this money. So talk about capitalistically driven charity. 
The point is, money, when it's wisely given and wisely stewarded, it can have an eternal dividend. Eternal dividends. And what we're essentially talking about is stewardship. Money that's used well and stewarded well, even charitable givings can multiply. They can multiply. And to that end, what I'd like to do is talk through Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30 today. This is the famous parable of the talents. You can't do a teaching series on money or economics and not talk about the parable of the talents. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 25, and I'm going to read from verses 14 to 30 as we hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. Each according to their own ability. That's important. Each according to their own ability. And then what does he do? He goes away on his journey. He leaves. The master leaves, and they're alone. What do you do? I don't know how many of you here um, work for a boss, or how many of you here are bosses. I know that there's at least a few in this room. You're the guy that when you enter back into the office, people are taking their legs off the table, and they're closing browser windows, and they're kind of snapping too. Well, the master is leaving, and as the master leaves, what do these three servants do? In verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 16, immediately the one who received five talents went, and he traded with them, and he gained five more talents. Now look at that. Capitalism existed in the first century AD. He received Ten talents total, so he traded with five, gained five more. In verse 17, in the same way, the one who received two talents gained two more. But the one who received only one, he went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who received five came up and brought five more, saying, Master, you entrusted five. See, I've gained five more, ten total. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, the one who received two talents came up and said, Master, you've entrusted two. I've gained two more. So a total of four. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. Finally, kind of sheepishly, the one who received just one came up and said, Master, I kind of knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid, and so I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here, you have what's yours. At least I didn't lose it. And Jesus said, that's okay. That's, you're poor. You only got one talent. You don't have many abilities. Don't worry about it. Actually, no. That's not what he says. Jesus says, or the master says, you wicked, lazy slave. Lazy. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. 
At least you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more shall, we, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's striking how every time we recite the word of the Lord, where we read it or reread it, it strikes differently. I can't seem to escape how, and believe me, I make no political statement today. But it strikes me how political this sounds, how capitalistic it sounds. So in order to understand exactly what's being said here about money, about poverty, about wealth, we have to first ask the question, what is a talent? What's a talent? A talent can be understood in multiple ways. It can be understood, um, wow, you, you play the viola so well. Uh, you're very talented. Or your acrobatic routine or your ability to run five-minute miles. You're talented. You're very talented. Well, the word talent comes from the Greek weight, talenton. A talenton was not just a couple of coins clinking into a bag. A talenton was 80 pounds. 80 pounds of substance. And this stuff could be used as currency. It could be translated into currency that was worth, listen to this, not 20 hours of labor, not 20 days of labor, 20 years. One talent was worth 20 years of work. So I did the math, and I calculated it at very conservative measures, um, uh, very minimum wage, probably less than minimum wage. At that rate, 20 years, you're talking about $300,000. One talent alone, $300,000. Multiply that by two, you're talking $600,000. That's a very large home in Houston, Texas. Multiply that by five, you're talking $1.5 million. $1,500,000. So the equivalent here of what we're playing with is not a couple of coins. See what you can do with it. We're talking large sums of money, large amounts of money, and heavy responsibilities. Here's $300,000, what are you going to do with it? My goodness, I, I could think about a couple of things I would do. The $300,000, what would I pay off first? I'd need to speak to my CPA. That's a lot of money. And essentially, we're talking about stewardship. Stewardship is the wise use of the responsibilities that are given to us. Stewardship, that word stewardship, it's, it goes back, it's old English. It literally breaks down to mean the, watch, the watcher, the caretaker of the house, the, 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 the ward, the ward of the hall, the hall ward, the steward, the keeper. And the thing about stewardship is it's not just money, it's everything. We're given stewardship over all kinds of things. For example, um, this past 12 months, uh, for whatever reason, coincidentally, I've had a lot of trips out to L.A. And the more times I go out there for school or for whatever purposes, you start to kind of get the culture of a city. L.A. is 
incredibly entertainment industry driven. It's amazing that all of their marquees and their billboards, they have huge faces on them of that smoking, you know, beautiful next hot young thing. She's on, she has her own Netflix series, or this person, he's the rising, you know, pop musician. And that person is given tremendous gifts of health and that award-winning smile and that beautiful tan and the looks and the reputation. But here's the thing. If there's anybody in this room that's under the age of 20, do you know the name Harrison Ford? Do you know the name Julia Roberts? Just like they would say to us, have you heard of um, Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant? Who's that? You see, the thing is, whatever we're given, even our health, our looks, everything is temporary. It's all meant to be stewarded. And we can steward everything that's given to us, our health, our smile, our possessions, our wealth, our reputation, our relationships, our influence. All of these things are given. Let's see what you do with it. And you can see, I'm a good steward of my health. I want to make sure that I've got a tip-top shaped body. But I really treat people terribly. So I'm not a good steward of my relationships. Or I'm a steward of everything else except my own hygiene. So every time I come up, I'm like, hi. And there's a stance of, dude, just brush, you know, like, you need to be a steward of your body. God's given you the gift. It's called a toothbrush. Use it. So we're given these stewarding responsibilities. The big question that I think this passage asks us is, how are we using that? And what I want to talk about today briefly are two halves. Are we being good stewards? And you can find this in your notes. The second half is, are we being bad stewards? What is good stewardship and what is bad stewardship? And what do the two look like? Again, keeping in mind, stewardship is everything, not just money, but our lives, our talents. Good stewardship is the first half. Let's look at Matthew 25, verse 14. It starts out this whole parable by saying this man, whoever he is, goes on the journey. Call him the boss. And he calls his slaves, entrusts all of his possessions to them, gives them according to their ability, and then what does he do? He goes away on his journey. He goes away on his journey. He leaves. Now, this is an important idea, the fact that he leaves. My children are, I don't think any of them are here right now, so I can talk about them. My children are just old enough now to be left home alone. And that's like a huge, for those of you with small children, you're like, oh my gosh, when will that day come? Um, they're just old enough to be left home alone. And the first time I said, you know, Mommy and Daddy, we have to step out, but can we trust you, you know, that the house will be, still be standing? Um, you're on your own. Now, the kids might say, yes. When the cat is away, the mice can play. We can do whatever we want, except um, Mom and Dad have cameras all over the house, and we're watching you 24-7. We can see anything that you do. So we're not really away. And in the same sense in this passage, you get the sense that the, 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 the master, he's left. But how we live, we have to live as if he's still here. This idea, this tension between awareness 
and presentness. Awayness and presentness. It's a theology. It's actually a theology. It's called the theology of the presence and the absence. And throughout the New Testament, we see this. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. He's here. He's here. He's gone. Where did he go? Let's go find him. He's, he's absent. So they find him. He's here. He's here. He's here. Finally, he's gone. And it seems like he's gone for good because he ascends into heaven. Jesus is gone. But actually, no, he's not because he's still uh, appearing to people on the road. His presence is still among us through the Holy Spirit. His presence, even though he's absent, is still here. So there's this balance of the presence and the absence. Just like the children, mom and dad are gone, finally. Actually, not really, because they can see everything that we're doing. And in the same way, this works itself out, even when we take communion. We do communion here. I hope you can all be with us for next Sunday. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month where we celebrate Communion Sunday. It's a special occasion. Whatever you believe about the communion meal, it's just bread, juice. What, what, what more hocus-pocus do we have to imagine? Whatever we believe, there is this same tension present. He's either absent and not there and it's just bread, or somehow he's present. Even in the communion meal, Somehow there is a real presence, or we believe there's an absence. Whatever the case is, we're still wrestling with that tension. Is the master here or not? You see, this whole passage, I believe the thrust of the passage, the talents, the thrust of the parable of the talents is about the absence of the master and how we conduct ourselves in his absence. Realizing that he's not really absent living as if there are cameras everywhere. How do we conduct ourselves? I think he was a great football coach, must have been. I think his saying was, the true test of character is who we are when no one is watching. So in the same way, who are we when the master is absent? That is what I think the thrust of this parable is about. You know, the hard thing about parables basically is this. If you've, if you've read the Gospels, if you've read the numerous parables, the hard thing about parables is that there's no answer key. There's no answer key. There have been times where I've read the parables of Jesus and I've said, I have no idea what that means. I don't get the point. And in order to understand a parable, there's a very, very simple Bible study tool that I'd like to teach you. Um, Quite simply, it's just reading the context. Some people believe that the Gospels are put together like a ransom note. This is called the ransom note theory. Have you ever seen a ransom note? You have like letters clipped out from different articles, and then, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they just kind of put the pieces together. And then in Matthew chapter 25, you've got three parables. So the author of Matthew, basically, he's just saying, let's just kind of smush a bunch of parables in this section because that's what, you know, we'll just, it doesn't mean anything. Actually, I believe it does mean something. I do believe that there is a reason why this parable is located where it is. There's a reason, there's a story, there's a larger picture. So if I could teach you, if I could cause you to be interested in this story, what I want to say is don't just read the parable alone you will get confused. You'll get lost. Is this about the talents? Is this about the master? What is this exactly about? Read the context. 
Anybody knows that. This is not hard teaching. This is, this is, um, this is basic study. If you're interested in a story, what did it say before? What did it say after? You see, for example, this story, this parable, is told more than once. It's told here in Matthew. It's also told in Luke. And there's a different slant in Luke than in Matthew when you consider the context. In the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, this parable is wedged in between different stories. In the beginning, there's a story about a man named Zacchaeus. Now, just track with me here, because you're going to see the point. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, he was this small, diminutive man who had a Napoleon complex, and so he was wealthy, he was a tax collector, he had a lot of money, and people resented him. They resented him, A, because he was a tax collector for the Roman Empire, and B, because he had a lot of money. And who doesn't like to resent people with a lot of money, right? We'll get back to that. So nobody likes Zacchaeus, but he climbs up a tree, and Jesus comes into town, and Jesus sees him, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house for dinner today. He's like, what? He's like Danny DeVito. He comes down, whoa, my house? You're coming to my house? Wait, wait, really? From this moment on, Lord, 50%. I'm giving away 50%, and if I've wronged anybody, I'll give them four times as much. And Jesus, he says, to this house, salvation comes. And everybody's like, what? That's like Warren Buffett. You go to Warren Buffett's house and you're saying, here, Warren Buffett, I'm going to bless you. He has everything. And then immediately after that, we have what? The parable of the talents. And you notice in the parable of the talents, it's not the poorer person who gets, who gets to go to, you know, who, who, it's not the poor person who wins at the end. It's the richer person. And in the punchline of, of Luke, of Luke 19, Luke 19, 25, it's, they're, saying, they're saying, Master, he already has 10 talents. Why, why do you have to give more to Zacchaeus? So in other words, when you read the parable in its context, in its context of the story of Zacchaeus, you're seeing that what you have here is a comment about rich people. Rich people. And when you read Jesus talking about rich people, oftentimes it seems to be that he's really making it hard. If you're above a certain income level, you're probably taking the elevator going ding, down. But here, it's different. All of a sudden, Jesus seems to be what? Pro-rich. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take this all the way to the end. Just hang with me. It seems that Jesus is pro-rich, and he's saying all the people in Woven that are of a certain income level, you can get more talents. And I'll give you more talents, just like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was blessed, I'll bless you too. Now, while it would appear that in this reading in Luke that Jesus is for the rich, hang on. Hang on, because you have to hear the same parable in Matthew 25. So whereas in Luke... This parable is it's in the context of, of Zacchaeus and how God is blessing the rich people too. In Matthew, there's no mention of Zacchaeus anywhere, not in the chapters preceding or the chapter after. In Matthew, this parable is housed, it's, it's flanked in between some of these scary sayings about being ready, being prepared. 
Just before the parable of the talents in Matthew, you have something called the parable of the ten virgins. And if I could just bring you up to speed, the ten virgins, they're all waiting for the one groom. Weird marriage practices back then. We'll, we'll save that for another time. And the ten virgins or the, the ten brides are waiting for the one groom to come, but they're getting a little sleepy because it's late and they're kind of, you know, five of them doze off. Well, in the middle of the night, the groom comes. And the other five, they wait. The, the five, they have their oil, their oil is prepared. They're ready to go. And the other virgins, they wake up. And, and, and if you want to know, I would squarely qualify myself in the, the crowd that fell asleep. That's so like me, so like me. Hey, could I just borrow some oil? Like, I was really, listen, I just dozed off there. I'm usually really good with my time, usually not late. Please, just loan me some oil. Come on. No. Well, why not? You're so selfish. You just think about yourself. No, because there's five of us. If there's six of us, that lessens my chances. It's not in my best interest. You're, you're so, and I'm going to turn it on against you and make it all about you, and you're so wrong. Well, here's the thing. You snooze, you lose. The early bird gets the worm. You're not prepared. Why should I share oil with you if you're not prepared? Now, do you see the connection with the talents? Whether you have 10 talents, $1.5 million, or just $300,000, or just $30 in the bank, it does not matter if you're rich or poor. The question is when the groom comes back with your $30, with your $3,000, or your $3 million, did you make something of it? That's the question. It's not about rich or poor. It's about faithfulness. Did you do something with it? You had talents, not just monetary talents. You had looks. You had health. You had personality. But I spent it smoking away, and now I have the Smurfette smoker voice or something like that, right? Listen, you have all these things to steward. Are you caring for them because God has given it to you? So when we read this parable in Matthew, it sounds different. It doesn't sound pro-rich, pro-poor. It actually charges everybody, regardless of how much you have or how good you look or if your face is on a marquee in L.A., regardless of the fact, the question is, did you do good with what you had on the earth? And it doesn't stop there. Listen to this. What does it say after this parable in Matthew 25? It gets into the parable of the sheep and the goats. Follow with me here, because this is the punchline of today's talk. The parable of the sheep and the goats basically is the master has returned, and he, he has everybody come forward, and he says, listen, um, I was in prison. Did you visit me? No. I was hungry. Did you feed me? No. I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? No. I was naked. Did you give me any clothes? No. We didn't see you, Lord. Okay. Um, there were people who were poor, the least of these, did you do any of those things for them? And the crowd is mixed, no, yes, half the people, no, we didn't. Half the people, yes, we did. The connection that I think is being made here is all of our talents that are given to us are not meant 
for our own purposes. All of the talents that are given to us are meant ultimately to clothe the naked, feed the poor, give water to the thirsty, and visit those in prison. Oh, you play the, you play the, the viola so well. I keep picking on that for some reason. It's not for me. With Matthew speaking about these parables, the parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats, I think what he's saying, one, two, three, is essentially this. Number one, be prepared. I'm coming back, and I never really left. And number two, I'm going to give you stuff to take care of. Not only be prepared, but do something with it. Trade with it. Make good out of it. And number three, use it for the poor. The talents that I gave you, use it for the poor. Number one, I'm coming back. Number two, I'm giving you stuff to take care of in my absence. Number three, make sure the stuff I give you to take care of doesn't just, you're not just, it's not just for you, but it's for the poor. In the end, every talent you and I have is not for selfish purposes. It's not for narcissistic purposes so that I could be number one in my field or number one in whatever it is that I do. It's for the purposes of the others. For sharing it. Good stewardship is meant to be for the poor. Good stewardship is meant for the poor. Let me share a quick story. Quick story. You know, um, I, I, I'm sure all of you have noticed that I've joined Bobby up on stage with, with, with my guitar. And, you know, I, w- um, I was practicing at home. I was telling my wife and my kids, I'm going to go grab my axe and melt some faces in my office. And they're like... So... Um, the, the whole story behind that, let me tell you, I've been, I've been playing the guitar since I was uh, about 13 years old. Um, from the ages of 23 until about 40, I didn't really play. Now, from the age of 13 until 23, I played in bands, um, and I've played, you know, I have no shame in saying, I played in front of thousands, um, and I've played and uh, led praise and done all that thing. But from the age of 23 to about 40, I, I kind of buried that talent. Now, why I did that, we don't need to get into that. I just didn't play. But something happened a couple of years ago. You know what happened? Summer camp. Summer camp comes along, and they're like, we want to diversify our team up front, so do we have an Asian guitarist? And they first asked Bobby, and Bobby said no. So I said, okay, my son is going to camp, so I'll play guitar. So I dust off my old guitar, which is like 20 years old, and, and I just you know, I just start playing around, and I'm starting to feel it, and then it comes back, and the next thing you know, I'm walking around the lunchroom like I'm Edge of U2, and all the little kids are coming up, and they're like, you're playing the guitar? You're so cool. Like, they're like, I love it. You're my hero. And I'm feeling like, you know what? This is nice. I, I'm not a rock star. Right? I, I pastor you know, the, a good, beautiful community here. Um, I'm, I don't have an award-winning smile that is on Channel 2 every Sunday morning. I, but to the little kids, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I, I'm with the Foo Fighters. Like, to the little ones, they're like, that's Wayne. Right? And you know, you know the thing is, um, it, it, even more here at Kingdom City, they said, we need a guitarist for, for the Wednesday night prayer meeting. So I started playing at the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Most of the people, they're coming here after work on Wednesday night. A lot of them blue collar, 
um, high percentage of people from LBN. And a lot of people, you can sense that they're here to really pray it out. They pray to fight. And there's a sense where they're coming to pray. And will I play my guitar for them? You bet I will. You bet I will. And is there any shame in that? No, there's no shame or there's no, I don't know. I will gladly use my talent if it will help small children and people who are stressed out on a Wednesday night. Will it serve the poor? Yes. Will I use it then? Yes. If a talent, no matter how, don't worry about you showing off. If it's going to help the little ones, the least of these, use it. Use the talent. If it's going to help the least of these, you are useful. Good stewardship is dictated upon how we use our talents, not that we become the best at what we do, but that we do what we do for the poor and how we use it to serve the poor. That's good stewardship. Let me round the basis here. I'm at third base now, finishing off with bad stewardship. I'll tell you what bad stewardship looks like. So good stewardship, I think we've established. Good stewardship is the master's gone, but we use our talents for the poor. Bad stewardship, look at verse 28 of Matthew 25. Verse 28, take away the talent from him, the one talented person, and give it to the one who has ten. Doesn't that kind of confuse you? Why does Jesus favor the rich in this story? All, everywhere else, Jesus is like the rich, easier for a camel to go through it. I have a needle. Why does he favor the rich here? What does Jesus have to say uh, in this story that's so, that's so pro-rich? Why? Why not, just, why not make the person with one talent the hero of the story? Why is it in the end that more is being given to the ten? You know what my answer to that is? My simple answer? Who cares? You have a talent. Do something with what's in your hand. Oftentimes, we look at the other people who have the ten talents. We see them on that terrible, terrible thing called Facebook, showing off all of their talents, and we get resentful, and we get envious. And the beginning of class struggle begins within you. <laughs> It's this Marxist conflict. It all begins with envy. Who cares who has ten talents? You have a talent in your hand. Stewardship goes south, or maybe I should say bad. Stewardship goes bad the minute we take our eyes off of what is our care and responsibility, and we make such a big deal and issue over other responsibilities. Income inequality, it's a big thing, I get it. But I'd rather spend more time working on the responsibility and stewardship of my talent than crying over why some people have so much money. Because in the end, they're not going to give me their money. And even if they did, I, I wouldn't feel right about it unless it was a, you know, a grant or something. <laughs> but I don't care. Why should I care? Why should I lose sleep? Why should I, in envy or resentment or anger, try to start, we're going to rise up against all the rich people? I mean, essentially, this is class warfare. Friends, I think history has shown us that envy 
it's, it's not really going to get a society anywhere. Stewardship begins when we take care of that one talent that we have. And what does Jesus say? More will be added besides. More will be added. Bad stewardship is when we're more focused on the talents of others than our own. Let me close with this. If you can just bring up those three principles of stewardship on the screen. And I'll close out with these three principles. And if you want, you know, you jot these down or take a picture of these. Um, I just want to say that this series on economics, for me personally, has been challenging because it's forced me to look at the poor. I did not anticipate that, I assure you. In no way did I plan to set out that we're going to kind of, you know, introduce this new mission. I didn't, as I studied scripture, as I looked at economics, I began to realize there it's inescapable. There's no way we could talk about markets, about desire, about value. We could talk about protectionism in the United States and protecting American, or we could talk about industry in China. We could talk about all of these things. I love that stuff, but at the end of the day, from a Christian perspective, all we're doing is talking about ideas if we're not really serving the poor. Last Sunday, Destiny Portal came and talked to us for Outreach Sunday. They gave us a talk about practical ways that we can work amongst the poor. The board is going to meet today, and we're going to talk about what we can do, how that looks, because I hope that this is not just us thinking nice thoughts but that as a church community, we're starting to create some on-ramps so that we can serve the poor, so that they can have on-ramps to flourish. Closing, number one, the first principle of stewardship, talents are not for narcissistic purposes. They're not for me. They're not so that I can be the best basketball player or so that I can be the best swim champion. They are meant to serve other people. They are meant to serve in particular, in Jesus' kingdom, the poor. Secondly, stewardship, here's the thing. If you're looking at somebody else's talents, you can't do it. You can't steward somebody else's stuff. You can't steward who some, you cannot steward with what you're not. You can't steward with what you don't have. We can only steward who we are and what we have. Second principle. And third and last, here's the thing. Some of us are <clears throat> Asian like myself. And we think God wants successful returns. God wants faithful returns. He doesn't need a huge turnaround. He doesn't need, he wants to see that you did your best with what you had. He wants faithful returns, not successful. Mm -hmm.